The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Amen. Well, church family, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, this morning we're looking at verses 2 through 13, and we're learning about an event in the life of Jesus we call the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration. Uh, Mark wrote about this miraculous, otherworldly event in order to encourage and strengthen his first century readers. If you know this, the Gospel of Mark was writ- written primarily to a Roman audience. If you know that, perhaps you know during the first century, Roman Christians were under threat of persecution by an emperor, a cruel emperor named Nero. Many first century Roman believers were seeing their friends and family members persecuted and even martyred for the faith. So Mark wrote this gospel by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage his readers who were living in perilous, difficult times. And in the midst of his gospel, Mark shares about this event we call the transfiguration. Verse 2 tells us after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Now that may not sound too unique, but in a first century Jewish mind, in a first century world, a mountain was often a place of divine revelation. For many of Mark's readers who had a Jewish background, they would automatically think of Moses, Exodus 19.3, receiving special revelation from God on a mountain. They would also think of Elijah receiving something similar in 1 Kings 19.8. So we see from the outset that Something special is about to occur. The mountain is the place where God shows up and makes himself known to his people. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John, three disciples who formed his inner circle up to this mountain by themselves alone. And verse 2 says he was transfigured in front of them. Transfigured. Everybody say that word transfigured. The word here speaks of an exterior change. The original language of the text, we have the Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. This is a, as one has said, a radical change, a complete transformation. Now I think this morning about my childhood when I hear this word and I think about Optimus Prime, baby, all right? I don't mean to make light of our Lord here, but that's just the first thing that goes through my mind. We all know that Optimus Prime can go from this to this in a matter of seconds. And he's changed completely. Don't charge anything extra for the sound effects, folks, all right? We know of that type of change, and hear me, the language here speaks of a radical, complete change, and listen, more importantly, a real change. Peter, James, and John here are not seeing a ghost. They're not seeing a phantom. They're not receiving a dream or a vision. 
They are seeing a real radical change of Jesus. This is important because all of this was designed to teach the disciples and to teach first century Christians some important truth about Jesus and some important truths about the Christian life. And Mark wanted his readers to know this was a miracle. The substance and nature of Jesus was radically transformed in front of his disciples because the Lord has some important heaven-sent truth for us. I want to speak this morning on this subject transformed by the transfiguration. And Mark gave this story for a reason to his original readers and the Holy Spirit has gifted it to us this morning for a reason as well. The Lord knows in the midst of difficult and perilous times, we need some encouragement. The Lord knows that the key to our spiritual success is to remember who Jesus is. The Lord knows this morning if we can get our eyes on the transfigured, glorified Christ, if our hearts and minds can become filled with his realities, we'll be more likely to live in the joy and the peace and the abundance of Christ. Oh, the pathway to victory this morning, the pathway to freedom is seeing Jesus for who he really is, the transfigured, transformed Son of God. What do we need to know about Jesus? How can we be transformed by the transfiguration? Well, our text this morning, I believe, gives us three spiritual commitments or three spiritual realizations we should have as a result of this momentous occasion. And number one, I walk away with this commitment. I would say this, number one, after reading about the transfiguration and studying this, I go away, walk away with this commitment. I need to listen more carefully. I need to listen more carefully. Look at number, verse number three, how the text continues. It says, Jesus' clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten it. The word dazzling here speaks of bright rays of light emanating from Jesus' clothing. Is it as if laser beams of light are protruding from Jesus' presence? The disciples indeed are seeing a miraculous sight and Mark comments that his clothing was as white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. In the first century world, launderers were, used, were known for using nitrous chemicals and substances to brighten clothing. And here, Mark tries to describe what Peter saw. Mark tries to describe the sight, but he has no human words to do it justice. Now, all of this, we believe, was a preview of coming attractions. As the disciples looked upon Jesus, they would see him, Revelation 1, 12 through 14, as he would appear after the resurrection. So the Lord here is trying to give his disciples a glimpse of glory, a preview of what would come. Jesus himself would defeat sin, punch Satan in the mouth, and deal a death blow to death. All of the consequences of sin would be erased because of what Jesus would do at the Calvary, at Calvary and at the tomb. And afterwards, he would be raised and he would receive a glorified body and the disciples would see him 
eyeball to eyeball as the glorified Lord. And this is the purpose of the transfiguration. The Lord wanted his disciples ahead of time to see Jesus as he would one day be. Verse 4 continues and says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, don't just read that and say, oh, yeah, that's cool. Elijah and Moses were there. No, these guys have been gone from the scene of human history for hundreds of years, right? I mean, this is unbelievable. Elijah and Moses are with Jesus on the mountain. Why Elijah and Moses? Well, Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents all the prophecies of God. These are the two leading figures of Old Testament history, Moses and Elijah, and they represent the entirety of the Old Testament. They are figureheads for all the law and the prophets. And by appearing with Jesus here, they remind us that Jesus came to fulfill all that God said and all that God promised in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 17, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Church, get your eyes on Jesus this morning. Recognize him for who he is. He's the one promised before time began to do away with sin. He is the son of God, the anointed one, the deliverer who stepped into the time continuum of human history to deal with our biggest problem, S-I-N, sin. He is the one who has come to give liberty and release to the captives. He is God's ordained means of salvation. Now seeing all of this, verse number five, Peter, look at verse number five, Peter said to Jesus. And you just read those four words, Peter said to Jesus and say, "Uh uh-oh, somebody's about to say something dumb. (laughs) We know Peter struggles with that proverbial foot and mouth disease. And here he's got to open his mouth once again and he says, Rabbi, you know, the first word's already insufficient he's already made a mistake how do you see jesus with bright rays of light coming from his clothes clothes and elijah and moses are there and all you can say is teacher rabbi rabbi it's good for us to be here duh (laughs) Uh, let us set up three shelters one for you one for moses and one for elijah Three shelters. Now, let, let's, let's give Peter some slack here. He actually knew the Old Testament. And it was believed, according to the Old Testament, that when Messiah returned to earth shortly before his kingdom was initiated, the people of God, the Jews, would celebrate a festival we see in Scripture, a festival called the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. You can go and read about it in the Old Testament. So Peter's actually thinking in his mind The kingdom of God is about to begin right now here on the mountain. It's going to start. It's about to go down. So let's start with the Feast of Tabernacles. That was his proposition, but we learn in verse 6 that he was really grasping for straws. He said this, look at verse 6, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Have you ever been there before? You don't know what to say and you try to say something, you end up saying something dumb. 
That's what Peter does here. We read in one of the other gospel accounts that Peter was actually asleep while Jesus was transfigured. He woke up to see Jesus and to see Moses and to see Elijah. And maybe because he was embarrassed for sleeping through the whole incident, he tried to come up with something cool and clever sounding to deflect from the fact that he had been asleep. Well, through all of this, we see that Peter has a problem. He's not grasping what's really going on in the midst of him talking. Verse 7, look, the Bible says a cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We see here a cloud. Now, for us, a cloud may mean rain. If we see clouds filling the sky, boy, it looks like we're about to get some rain. In Jesus' day and with the Jews, the a cloud, in Hebrew thought, often represented the manifest presence of God, Yahweh's Shekinah presence. And here, this cloud overshadowing the mountain is a symbol that God himself is on the scene. God is present, and the voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's the same voice that was heard back in Mark chapter 1, verse 11 at Jesus' baptism. And here, the voice describes Jesus as God's son in order to show Peter, who was just calling him rabbi, that Jesus was indeed greater than Elijah. He was indeed greater than Moses. And there was a great need for Peter, James, John, and all the disciples to simply listen to him. This command to listen was drawn from Deuteronomy 18.15, which is a passage in your Old Testament that told God's people when Messiah shows up to earth, you need to listen to him. And here the Lord gives this great command to Peter, James, and John because they indeed needed to listen to Jesus. The Lord had told them in chapter 8, he was about to tell them again that he was going to be crucified and be raised for their sin. Yet uh, Peter, James, and John were thinking he's going to start his kingdom now and chase out the Romans. They were just focused on a physical kingdom. And God wanted to remind Peter, James, and John of their need to listen to Jesus. They were, they were guilty of forgetting what the Lord had taught them. They were so fixated on themselves and what was going on in the world. They were so hotly anticipating a physical kingdom that they could not receive what Jesus was teaching them. Our text, this story, underscores and highlights for us the importance of listening to the Lord. To be true disciples, to be spiritually healthy and strong, we have got to regularly, continually bend our ears to what the Lord says. We have to train ourselves to listen to the words that come out of his mouth. In a world of so much deceit, And in a world of so many distractions, we've got to be able to hear the voice of God in the midst of all of the clutter and in the midst of all of the white noise. We've got to be careful that we don't have friends who are like chatterboxes with endless information that doesn't really profit. 
We've got to be careful not to listen to those voices over the voices of the, God's word. We've got to be careful that we're not so in tune with social media and what people are saying that we're losing sight of the solid rock of God's word. The scripture tells us in James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, every one of you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Oh, we need to hear that voice from the cloud this morning. Church, let's learn to listen to Jesus. Let's be careful that social media, news agencies, friends, acquaintances, movies, TV shows aren't the primary voices we hear. Let's make sure the Bible is our authority. Let's hunger and thirst for the Word of God. Let's realize the words of King Jesus who said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I ask you, are you regularly, personally ingesting God's truth? Is your mind filled with his realities? Or are you letting the script of your mind be filled with all of the ideas and opinions of a fallen world? Oh, I read this story and I say like, I'm like Peter. I've got that proverbial foot and mouth disease. I'm sometimes focused on what I want instead of what God wants. And I know I need to listen more carefully. Number two this morning, I see this realization from the text. Number two, I need to remember the resurrection. Look at what we see in verse number eight. It says, suddenly, everybody say that word suddenly. Suddenly, Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So in a moment, in an instant, in a flash, the scene changes. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. Jesus is back to normal. No longer bright white light emanating from his presence. There is a climactic shift in the scene. And Mark is intentional to point this out, this drastic, sudden shift in the scene was a stark reminder that Jesus could not stay on the mountaintop. He could not remain in his glorified state. Why? He had work to do. Oh, church, he had to go back down the mountain and get around sick folk, and he needed to perform miracles and teach more lessons, and ultimately he needed to set his face like a flint towards Calvary's cruel cross. The scene changes to show that Jesus didn't ultimately come to stay on the mountaintop. He came to live among sick and hurting and broken people like us, and he came to take a beating on our behalf and die on the cross for our sins. Things changed because Jesus knew he had a mission. And in verse 9, we read, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, have you ever had anybody say something like this to you? Now, I'm going to tell you a secret, but you got a promise you don't tell anybody. I mean, why do they even do that? That just makes me want to tell it more. <laughs> right? Jesus here tells them, hey, hey, boys, you just saw me change. I know you just saw Moses and Elijah. 
Sorry, guys, you can't tell anybody. Can you imagine that? Like, I'd want to tell people, man, he had like bright lights booming. And Moses was there, and I was like, what's up, Moses? Did that staff really turn into a snake? And Elijah was there. It was incredible. But Jesus tells him you can't tell anybody. Why? Why would Jesus do that? In fact, read, read the gospel sometime. You'll see Jesus, boom, heal somebody. Then he's telling them, hey, you can't tell anybody about it. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Many uh, Bible teachers call this the messianic mystery. Why does Jesus command people to be silent about his miracles, about his transfiguration? Well, we believe we know why. Jesus knew if people went around sharing about his miracles and sharing about his transfiguration, people would rush to make him a king. Uh, people would think he's the Messiah. It's time to throw out the Romans and establish the kingdom now. And Jesus knew, that's not my purpose on earth. Don't get people all worked up. I've come for another purpose. I've come, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost I will be a literal, physical king one day, but I've come now as a suffering servant to die for sinners. Verse 10, after hearing this, look, they kept his word to themselves, questioning, what does he mean by rising from the dead? Notice the disciples questioning. They still don't get it. They don't understand, frankly, the gospel. They don't understand that Jesus had to come and live a perfect life on behalf of sinners, die as a sacrifice for our sins, and be raised to give us eternal life. They don't get it. They're clueless about the gospel. They've got religion, but they don't understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They're following Jesus in name only. They're not living by gospel truth. They stand as a warning for us. We've got to be on guard. If we're not careful, we can be like disciples and say, I go to church. I'm a Christian. I'm a member at Tabernacle Baptist. I've got a Bible. This is a real important book to me. My my family, we're all Christians. Boy, I don't believe in certain things that other people believe in society. I, I, I don't do these things, and I make sure I do these things. Now, now, hear me this morning. There's a place for being proud of Christian heritage, and there's a place for convictions, and there's a place for being committed to your local church. So don't hear what I'm not saying, but... Do hear what I am saying. Be careful you're not like Peter, James, and John. Be careful that you don't have a religion in which there is zero focus or little focus on the gospel. See the folly of Peter, James, and John. They liked Jesus. They thought he was a big deal, but they were clueless about the resurrection. They had overlooked the cross and Calvary. They weren't focused on his main mission in life. 
And all this is a great reminder for us and all of our churchianity and even Christianity. We've got to make sure we stay gospel-centered. Oh, friends, if it wasn't for the body and blood of Jesus this morning, you would be without hope and cut off from God. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus went to the cross, you'd still be in your sins under the condemnation of the Holy One. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, you would have no Holy Spirit within you. You would have no hope. You would have no joy, no prospect of peace. If Jesus hadn't been bruised and beaten on our behalf, we'd have no promise of life forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, if Jesus wouldn't have defeated Satan and sin, that struggle you have, that sin or that addiction would surely defeat you. You would have no power over sin if it wasn't for the gospel. You've got to be on guard against overlooking and neglecting gospel truth as Jesus' disciples did. We've got to stay gospel-centered, gospel-focused. We've got to keep our eyes on Calvary and the empty tomb. We've got to make it a habit of preaching Jesus to ourselves and reminding ourselves of what he has done on our behalf. We've got to be on guard of doing what they did, overlooking great, glorious gospel truths. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14 reminds us, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. See how important the resurrection is. I can remember several years ago I was going through a season in life in which I was really struggling. There had been some difficult things in life and I was having a hard time processing it. I was feeling kind of overrun with some anxiety and some hurt, even some anger over things that had happened. It had gotten into the place where I would say it was eating my spiritual lunch. It was controlling me a little bit. I was having trouble sleeping. Throughout my day, I would think about these things a lot. And I got to the point, hey, I'm a pastor, but I know this is becoming what I would call life dominating. And I knew I needed to talk to someone. And I went to see a friend, a Christian counselor, to talk about what I was going through. And in the course of our conversation, he used one of those counseling tricks on me. I knew what he was doing because I'd studied counseling. I mean, taking classes at a doctoral level on counseling. And I I knew what he was doing when he said this. He said, Patrick, is there ever any time where you're all right, where you're doing well? I thought, I know what you're doing. I I learned this trick in school. You ask that question and whatever they share could give you a clue. Like, okay, this is a thing that will help them. But I thought I'll go along with it. And I remember giving an answer and saying, you know, one time, and I told Laura this before, one time, there's one occasion which I seem to do really well, and that's when I'm preaching. It seems like when I'm standing and preaching Jesus and reminding folks of all he's done and how great he is and how he's carried our sins away and how we have hope in him, it seems like in that moment I have peace that surpasses all understanding. The counselor's method worked. I was reminded Here's the key many times to all of our frustration, all of our struggles in life. Looking at the crucified, buried, and perfect, and risen Jesus Christ. 
Know this, it is Jesus and Jesus alone that will give you hope and peace in this world. You can't figure it all out. You got to live by faith. There's no Christian cliche. There's no one-liner. There's no human explanation that's going to help you navigate through all this stuff that's going on in this world. Look to the cross. Look to Calvary. Look to the empty tomb. Preach Jesus to yourself. I need to remember the resurrection. Lastly, I would say this. I need to study Scripture. Look at verse 11. We'll close here. It says, then they asked him, why did a scribe say that Elijah must come first? Jesus is trying to teach them about the resurrection, and they question Jesus by quoting a scribe. I mean, the audacity here. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, he's the logos, John 1, 1. He's the embodiment of God's word, and they're questioning God's word with a one-liner from some scribe, some religious teacher. Jesus, in grace, says, verse 12, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Jesus actually affirms the teaching of the scribes. You have a rare instance of that here in Scripture. He says, yeah, they're right. Elijah does come first and restores all things, but why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Notice what Jesus does. He affirms their question, but then points them. Listen, he points them back to Scripture. The scribes are doing what many of us do sometimes. They're quoting a popular religious teacher instead of quoting the Word of God. They're quoting something they saw or heard from a friend instead of quoting the Word of God. And Jesus reminds them, hey, it's more important to know what God's Word says than to know what man says. And church, hear, it, hear, hear the Word of God this morning. It's more important to know what God's Word says than what's going on in social media. It's more important to know what Jesus says than to know what your favorite news channel is saying. Jesus here uses this phrase, it is written. It's popular Jewish language that was used in a debate to refer back to the authority of Scripture. It was a way of ending all debates. If you could quote scripture that directly applied to the situation, you would silence your adversary. Jesus here uses that popular phrase just as he used in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 when doing battle with the devil. He uses that phrase, it is written to appeal to the authority of scripture. And Jesus' words remind us in a world of so much deceit, depravity, in a world of so much corruption and confusion, in a world of so much doubt and despair, we need to be people who say it is written. We need to be people who say we stand on the authority of God's word. Like Jesus, we must say his word is more important as our daily bread. And ultimately, we see from Jesus here the importance of studying scripture. The disciples knew some scripture but they didn't know it well. It was a lack of Scripture study and true understanding of Scripture that caused John 5, 38 through 40, many first, first century Jews to miss the Messiah and the disciples were in danger of the same folly here at the transfiguration. 
And their example, though we kind of laugh at their foolishness, really reminds us of ourselves. Sometimes we can be casual listeners to sermons and lessons and God's word, but to be strong in this generation, we need to be like the Bereans of old, Acts 17, 11. We need to search the scriptures daily and make sure that we know God's truth. We've got to be on guard against pop Christianity and religiosity that isn't really grounded in the word. We've got to make sure we're staying in the rails of God's truth. We need to read our Bibles regularly, study them with sincerity, and stick to the simple, unadulterated truth of Jesus and know that it is his word and his gospel that will give us faith, hope, love, joy, and peace during these days. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.